Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Misty, congratulations on the book. It was such a lovely tribute to Raven Wilkinson and also to intertwine her story with your incredible story as well. So I guess let me just start by asking you, who was Raven Wilkinson? It is such an honor. And I think I say this with every book that I write, but this, that this one is is my most proud accomplishment, uh, you know, of all the books that I've written. And um, that's because of what Raven meant to me, means to me. Raven Wilkinson was uh, the first Black ballerina to join a mainstream major elite touring classical company, you know, really one of the first American ballet companies that came to America, I believe in the 30s, uh, the Ballet Russe de Monte Carlo. She joined the company in 1955, and she was the first and only Black woman to dance there. She became a soloist very shortly after joining, which was unheard of for Black women in the ballet field. She endured so much uh, adversity and and hardship throughout her career, um, having her life threatened whenever the company would tour through the South, you know, experiencing the KKK, you know, incredible stories, you know, them coming onto the stage in the theater, stopping the tour bus, looking for the the Black dancer and really threatening her life. Um, It it derailed her career for a little while. And uh, eventually she ended up moving to Amsterdam and dancing with the Dutch National Ballet for about 10 years uh, before returning to New York City. Um, But she never did dance again in America in a classical ballet company because no uh, white company would take her. Um, She went into uh, performing with the New York State Opera, um, where she sang and acted and um, danced a little bit. But she is a pioneer in the classical ballet world and became a close mentor and friend of mine um, over the last, I don't know, about 10 years or so. Yeah, a close mentor and friend of yours. But you sort of happened upon her, right? You happened to learn about her by watching a documentary. Can you tell us how you found out about her? Yeah, it was um, really unbelievable. You know, I've spent uh, the majority of my career, you know, at least the first 10 years or so, um, not really knowing my history as a Black person person as a black woman in classical ballet. And I was searching for this sense of, of, of belonging and acceptance. And, um, you know, where is my history within this world? And there's just not a lot of, uh, documentation of Black women's contributions to this art form. Um, so I'm, I'm, I was always looking for a way to learn more. So I happened to be watching a documentary on the Ballet Russe de Monte Carlo, um, wanting to learn more about the history of, of this art form. And uh, I don't know, an hour and a half or so into this documentary, this elegant black woman appeared on the screen. And it was the first time that I even became aware that there was a black woman in that company. Um, I was stunned. I was, I was angry that I didn't know her, her story. Uh, But I also felt like she gave me the second wind in a time when I uh, felt I would, like I was at a standstill within my career. Um, and knowing that there had been someone who had walked the same path as me um, gave me a different sense of purpose and, and um, 
made me feel as though it was my responsibility to do everything that she didn't have the opportunity to do. Um, and, and it's really incredible that after learning of her and, and, you know, feeling that I needed to share her story and every platform that I had, um, and then eventually finding out that she was still alive um, and she actually lived a block away from me in New York City. That that was one of the, the more remarkable things. I mean, of course, the fact that we probably had passed each other on the street a number of times and never knew it. Um, but meeting her and finding out that, you know, I'm expecting for her to just be learning about me and, and to be meeting me for the first time. And the first thing she says to me is, I've followed your career since you were 15 years old. Um, and I come to, uh, you know, most of your performances and I have like throughout your professional career. That was just mind blowing to me. <laughs> yeah. I remember you talking about that moment of seeing her in that company and feeling a certain sense of recognition, um, which I think can mean so many things. But you also say that it was at a certain time in your life where you really needed to discover someone like Raven. What were you going through at that time? You know, I spent the first decade of my career, um, the only Black woman at American Ballet Theater uh, in a company of uh, between 80 and 90 dancers, you know, within that time. And you know, it, it was a sense of just feeling isolated and, and feeling like maybe this is not the place for me, the place where I can truly thrive. Um, and it, you know, I, I, I had been a soloist, I think, for three years um, when I learned of Raven. Um, and, and though I had made it to soloist and I was only the second black woman to ever reach that position in, in the companies, I think then like 70 year hist history or something like that. Um, and uh, I just felt like maybe that was as, as far as I could go. Um, there'd never been a black woman to reach the rank of principal dancer and I wasn't being challenged. I wasn't being given opportunity and I was often overlooked. I mean, there were so many instances where I literally was told uh you know, when I, I would I would ask about, you know, certain roles and, and why I wasn't cast in them when my 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 uh, other soloists in the company were. And I literally it was literally, oh, sorry, we overlooked you. And I feel like that's the story for a lot of minorities, a lot of black people um, where you feel that though you stand out, you're not seen or heard. Um, and I felt that I needed someone who understood my journey and my path to help guide me in a way. Um, and, and, you know, a lot of the mentors I had at that point um, were incredible Black women who had done so much for me and inspired me and um, nurtured me, but were not a part of the ballet world. They were successful in their own right and in different fields. But um, Raven was literally the perfect person that I needed um, to show me how to look at my career in a different way. Uh, she was so hopeful and so present and so balanced and um, had incredible empathy um, after all that she has had endured uh, throughout her career. Yeah. She passed in 2018. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that 
for all the incredible things you learned from her throughout um, your relationship with her, I was also struck by how it also made you realize how little had changed for Black ballerinas, even from the time that she was dancing to the time that that you were dancing. So, so let's go back actually a little bit to talk about your arc as well and how it reflected to you that there was still a long way to go. Um, so, so when were you first introduced to ballet? Um, I had. Uh, I guess an unusual path um, into the into the ballet world. Um, I was 13 years old uh, when I really kind of stumbled upon it. I mean, I really stumbled upon dance in general. Um, I was never uh, a part of any like structured classes. I, I never took a, a dance class in my life, um, but I loved movement. It was something that I was doing in the privacy of my home um, I, because I was so shy and so introverted and. Um, Music and dance became this escape for me. Um, I had a, a very chaotic childhood. You know, I was one of six children in a single parent home, a lot of moving around and changing schools and um, uh, sometimes not even having a roof over our heads. I mean, we were living in a motel actually at the time when um, I discovered ballet. Uh, but the first form of dance that I did was um, joining the drill team at my middle school um, in Southern California. Uh, I, for some reason, like I had no confidence in like when it came to anything in my life. And for some reason, I felt that I should audition for the position of captain of this drill team when I had no experience. Um, and I did, and they made me captain. And it was from there that the coach um, said, you know, you have a lot of potential and I think you should take these free ballet classes that are being offered at the Boys and Girls Clubs uh, uh, in the Boys and Girls Club in San Pedro, California. So I was already a member. My mom had me and my siblings uh, there, you know, to have a safe place for us to go after school. Um, and that's when I was introduced to my first ballet teacher uh, who uh, was teaching this ballet class on a basketball court in the gym at the Boys and Girls Club, looking for more diverse students to give scholarships to, to bring into her uh, school. And she said from the first class that she uh, taught me that she knew that I was a prodigy. Um, eventually she invited me to live with her and her family so that I could really focus and catch up uh, since I started so late um, because most professionals will go off to join companies between the ages of 16 and 19. And I was already 13. Uh, so I had a lot of catching up to do. Um, I ended up training for four years before I moved to New York City and joined American Ballet Theater. Yeah. You talked about how just music just made sense in your body, that doing ballet just felt so natural and organic. And I'm curious what you feel like ballet gave you, especially as you describe the backdrop of your life at that time? Um, ballet gave me everything I think I was searching for as a child. Uh, it gave me stability and consistency. Um, it made me feel safe. You know, just the, just the environment of being um, in a studio uh, where, you know, you're, you're literally like naked, uh, you're vulnerable, you're literally just wearing tights and a leotard. Um, but you're in this environment where 
I just felt so um, at ease. I felt like my body could relax, like all of the tension that I always had, um, just again, from from this, the environment that I grew up in, I could let go. And um, I felt beautiful for the first time in my life. Um, I felt like I was good at something. I was being told I was good at something. There was something that was just mine. I didn't have to share it with my five siblings. Um, you know, it was really difficult for my mother to uh, put in the time and give attention to each one of us when there were six of us and she was working many jobs. And um it gave me confidence. It, it, it showed me what perseverance and um, strength and grace, uh, you know, all of these things that like I understand the power of dance and the power of art, um, which is why I've started my own foundation with a similar program to the one I, I came up in. Yeah, I, the description of it giving you this sense of power was a very powerful thing to read because the irony is once you really committed yourself to it, the gatekeepers of the ballet world actually started to chip away, um, kept trying to chip away at something that gave you power. So it had this like dual effect on you. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I, I, I remember even when you were describing um, like being the Swan Queen in Swan Lake and, and just, the way that they ask you to dust yourself with, with white powder and things like that, to be able to, to sort of blend in and follow the, the idea that this is really an art form for white dancers. Um, just those, those kinds of things are just the tip of the iceberg of all the kinds of messaging that the ballet world would give you. Um, first, do you want to talk a little bit about getting the role of the Swan Queen in Swan Lake, what that means. Um, because I think it really does, in so many ways, encapsulate all of the pressures, expectations that, that you were experiencing while also trying to be and own that space of power that ballet gives you. Yeah. Um, so Swan Lake is really the... Uh, the most iconic ballets in, in the repertoire. And for a principal ballerina, that's really, um, that's, that's the top. That's what uh, most dancers aim for. And, and even if you are a principal dancer, it doesn't guarantee that you will ever perform that role. I know principal dancers that uh, have danced at ABT that never even had the opportunity to do that role. Um, it's also one of uh, a category of classical works that uh, is called the Ballet Blanc, which uh, translates into white ballets. Um, it's probably one of the most recognizable from that genre. Uh, it's when the second act of the ballet uh, is typically um, characters that are uh, spirits or sylphs, uh, otherworldly, not alive <laughs> um, or not human. Uh, so they will powder their skin uh, to take away the shine um, so that they don't look human. But uh, for generations and generations, uh, Black women have not been cast uh, in the second acts of, of, of these ballet blanc uh, ballets, period, let alone even be considered 
to do the lead, the the um, the white swan, the swan queen, uh, the dual role of Odette Odile, which is the white and the black swan. Um, and so, you know, there, you know, I write it, I write it in, in the book and in, in the wind at my back that there is this long uh, kind of generational trauma that is connected, this black ballerina generational trauma that I think is so um, connected to Swan Lake in particular. So that's not even a role I allowed myself to dream of doing, um, you know, joining the company. Swan Lake was the first ballet that I performed as uh, a corps de ballet member with ABT when I was 19 years old. Um, and I remember uh overhearing, well, a friend of mine, a colleague in the company, overhearing um, a very important person in the company who was a part of the artistic staff um, saying that I should not be allowed to perform in the second act because I will ruin the aesthetic, I will ruin the line, um, this this unison of white dancers dancing in white tulle. Um, and when the company filmed the ballet um, for, uh, it's, it's actually a, a video you can purchase today. Um, I was not a part of the second act of any of, of, of those uh, parts of the ballet because of the color of my skin. So there's a long history connected to that. So when, um, I don't know, it must have been 14, 14 or 15 years after I joined the company, which is a very late age to be given, uh, you know, some of your first principal roles. Uh, if you're not a principal dancer by that point, it's most likely is not going to happen. So when I was told that I would be learning the role of Odette Odile um, at 32 years old, my mind was blown. Um, and it, I literally had to kind of reassess, like change the way I thought about this ballet. And, um, and I mean, I should have gone to therapy. <laughs> I should have gone to therapy strictly for Swan Lake. And I did it <laughs> um, because there was so much change in my mindset that needed to happen to allow me to really feel confident and that I should be performing that role. So there was a lot of baggage that came with it. Yeah, you you write about how you kept questioning whether you were worthy of it. And then at the same time, putting the pressure on yourself that you, if you didn't do it well, that, that you would make it harder for other Black ballerinas to be given that role. And that is just an incredible amount of pressure to carry. It, it is... Um, it is a it it can be such a burden to carry, but I was so struck by something that you said in the introduction, which is um, that what you learned from Raven was that when I enter the whole when I enter the whole race enters with me. That it's not just a burden or pressure, but it offers the promise of possibility. I just was wondering, how did Raven teach you that? And how did you come to internalize that so that you could see it as an opportunity as opposed to just something tremendous to carry? Yeah, it, it took me, um, you know, having a lot of, I mean, I guess you could say Raven was my therapist. <laughs> it took me having a lot of conversations with her. Um, and, you know, Raven was such an incredible 
I mean, I guess you can call her teacher, but not not your typical teacher uh, where, you know, she'd sit down and have these life lessons that she was, you know, that were so clearly being told. Um, but it was through these stories or just, um, you know, the way that she treated people um, that allowed me to see that even with everything she experienced throughout her career, she still had such a love and respect um, for the art form and for the the people in it as well. Um, that you know, she was a part of something that was so much bigger than her, um, and and that she had a responsibility every time she went on stage. And that it wasn't just a responsibility, but a, a privilege to be able to do what we do, to be able to do something that you know that you're passionate about, um, and that you know there could be one person in the audience that you're affecting and that you're changing their their lives and um and it really allowed me to kind of step back and think about these opportunities in different ways um you know how many people can say that they had the opportunity to perform the swan queen and this was my shot to go out there um enjoy myself. That was one of the big things that she would always say is, you know, um, that you're doing this because you love it and you want the audience to feel that, you know, that it's coming from a true and natural and genuine place. Um, but she just changed the way that I, that I looked at things. Um, it's, it's of course, it's of course like a serious, uh, thing when you're on stage and you work your whole life to do these roles, but at the same time, it's just ballet. Well, I, I was struck by how she would talk about how ballet itself, the core of ballet, is not racist, that it's the it's not designed to be exclusive, that it's the gatekeepers who make it that yeah. way. And, and did you question that, too, as you got into it and saw um, the lack of representation? Initially, you were like, that's okay. Like I, that my love of this is so powerful um, that it overcame whatever concerns you had about the lack of representation um, of black dancers in it. But um, the way that she talks about how it's not racist, the core of it is not racist. What did, what did she mean by that? That the core of it is not racist. Yeah. I mean, if you, you think back to, um, I mean, the fact that this, this art form was created, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years ago and the technique has not changed. We're literally still doing, uh, the exact same technique, uh, you know, that our ancestors were doing. Um, it's such a pure, technique and and art at its core like you were saying um that it's not had to change in that way of course the the stories that we're telling and um the the body types that have evolved because of cross training and the the physicality of things or the way that we're eating and taking care of our body has changed and shifted but uh the technique does not uh does not discriminate against different body types all body types can do this this uh, art form, and it creates the most incredible outcome. And it's even more beautiful when it's done on different body types and, and people from different backgrounds. But um, it's so clearly um, the 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 structure, the institutions that have uh, kept 
uh, people of color out of it. It's it's not the technique that's that's saying these certain body types can't do it. It's the people involved, and 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 it's these institutions that have been built um, with a certain aesthetic in mind, and uh, and it's really made people uh, convinced people that ballet dancers look a certain way, um, which just uh, perpetuates the same you know discrimination and, and exclusion and racism. To the point that there were times when people suggested that you dance in a different lane, right? Dance a different type of dance. Yeah, it happened. It happened for both Raven and I. I mean, uh, you know, it's it's pretty awful. Just you know, being being black, being African American, to be told that you should be doing African dance when that's not at all something that either of us trained in. Uh, but uh, you know, a lot of a lot of. Um, Black dancers are, you know, steered towards more uh, modern dance uh, because the stereotype is that black people have flat feet and it's more suitable when you're not in a point shoe and you don't have to articulate your feet, um, that ballet is um, is something that takes uh, uh, more skill than a black person has, um, intelligence that a black person doesn't have. Um, uh, and so we're often told that it, you know, we'll, we'll find more success if we um, if we try jazz, hip hop or African dance, modern dance, not, not classical. Yeah, uh, we have questions coming in from the audience. And one of them um, is, is there a role or performance that is still on your bucket list? Oh, Oh my goodness. I've done so much in my 20 plus year career at ABT. And I'm, you know, I'm trying to think about, you know, I, I think it that there, there's certain roles that I haven't done enough that I, I want more, more time, more of an opportunity to do. And, um, Manon being one of them, um, you know, these more, really powerful story uh, ballets where uh, it's just a lot of meaty acting. Um, And it's so difficult. I mean, it's like this in life, you know, you, you have a young body and you physically can do so much, but you don't have the life experiences. You don't have those reps of doing something and feeling comfortable in it. So it's like a double-edged sword. Um, You know, I feel that tackling these, these meaty acting roles, like I'm ready and I have all the life experience, but my body's not what it used to be. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that is actually another thing I wanted to talk with you about. So we were talking about Swan Lake earlier and you were talking about how in the book, you know, it requires almost its own training, right? Because you are, you have to maneuver your arms like wings and so on. And there's also so much to ballet that I came to appreciate in reading your memoir of the character portrayal, the acting. And so I wonder, um, I wonder how you approach how you portray characters, just artistically, how you interpret roles. Because I do feel like given that the techniques are, you know, as you say, they've gone back forever the, and and the and what constitutes doing those correctly is one thing. But where the ballerina really comes in is is the way that they interpret and what they bring to those incredible moves. So I'm just wondering how you approach that part of it. Yeah. Um, it's taken, it's taken a lot of time and a lot of, 
uh, focus and um, and for me to have like an open mind and an open heart and and uh, and be open to getting uh, guidance and um, you know I worked with a theater coach uh, probably prob- from earlyish on in my career because I think I I, I understood the importance of the story storytelling aspect of what we do, Um, that it's not just technical feats. Uh, You know, uh, the the younger that the dancers are and come into companies, the the more that you start to see things change, uh, where technically they are able to accomplish far more than we ever could. Um, but then, you know, the focus becomes too much on the tricks and, and uh, the flexibility and, and all of these things. And, and I think I've always had an understanding of the power of storytelling because there was so, uh, that was my way of expression. Uh, you know, it wasn't just about me finding ballet and, and it being fun and uh, me trying to uh, get my leg the highest, but it truly was was uh, an escape from my life. And it was through the storytelling, it was through the artistic aspect of, of ballet. Um, so, you know, I, I guess that's why I, I felt so comfortable in, in wanting to reach out to theater, a theater coach and, and really focus on, on the storytelling aspect of it. Um, but it's, it's doing research. It's, it's, I guess like any actor would, would research a role, um, it's understanding uh, what part of the world the ballet takes place in. It's understanding all of the surrounding characters and how you relate to them. Um, it's digging deep because, you know, we're not able to use our voice and there's no dialogue. There are no words. Um, this is all through, um, you know, a technique that probably the majority of the people in the audience don't know. So how do you tell a story through a language that, people in the audience might not know. Um, so, you know, it's really important for, it was always has been really important for me to be as human and grounded in these roles, even if they are so fantastical, you know, where I'm playing um, a princess or a firebird or a swan, um, that it's it's something that the audience can connect to and, and and relate to. So it's reading books, it's doing research on on the internet, um, you know, but really taking the time to to know details um, so that there's never a moment when you're on stage and uh, and there's not dance steps and you don't know what to do with yourself. Such an incredible amount of discipline that that ballet requires on so many different levels. We have another audience question. Is there anything you wish you had known or done differently when you started at the American Ballet Theater? Hmm. You know, I, I, I wished I would have been more confident in, um, in, uh, in, pushing myself in terms of like the conversations I was having uh, with my artistic director, like having, having more agency over my career, which is so difficult for young people when they're, they're coming into a professional, you know, the professional workforce or, you know, whatever it is, uh, you know, um, but it's also not something that's, that's really uh, taught to us, especially as, as dancers, you know, we're often just told to, um, 
you know, be quiet, be feel fortunate that you're even in this space and you have this opportunity and, you know, not to, uh, you know, advocate for yourself. Um, and I wished I would have felt comfortable doing that earlier on. I think it would have saved me a lot of hardship. It would have made me, uh, you know, know how to, you know, what the things I needed to work on in order to improve and, and, um, get certain roles and um, just be a more confident woman in, 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 in the world. But as you describe the systems and structures of ballet, there's such a power dynamic. I think you, yeah. you talked about how determining who gets a solo in a performance is like as secretive as, as determining who the next Pope will be. <laughs> it's just, it's just yeah. this really opaque it's, process. It, it's a, it's a subjective art form. Um, but it, it's also, you know, it's, it's the artistic director's preference and, and there's so much of it that you can't control. And I feel like a lot of times, um, you know, they don't want to ever make clear promises because you never know how a dancer might change or injury and the expectations that are set. So there's just so much, uh, fuzziness, um, when it comes to that aspect of the, of the ballet world. Yeah. Well, this uh, audience member wants to know what is the best piece of advice, either professional or personal, that you've received and who was it from? Yeah, um, I've received so much incredible advice. It's hard to uh, say, you know, just one person. I know um, Susan Jaffe, who was a principal dancer with American Ballet Theater um, and is is taking over as artistic director um, next year, which is so exciting. But she was someone that, uh, you know, was always uh, saying like to, to, you know, whenever I'd be distracted by, um the reviews or critics or blogs or whatever it is, people writing about me on the internet and um, to not let other people's words define you and that you really have the power to, um, to take what you want from, from people. Um, but, but also Prince was another one. Yeah. The musician. And, and I, I worked with him for, for, for some time and um he definitely changed the way that I looked at myself as um, being the only and, and feeling isolated, you know, in, in a company and, um, and kind of having this negative look outlook on that. And, uh, and he was like, do you know how incredible it is to be different and to be unique and, and to be the only, uh, there's so much power in that people are looking at you. Do you know how many people want that focus? And I was like, huh, like I've never, I never looked at it in, in that way. And, um, and that definitely helped for me to uh, understand and kind of change my perception of myself and, and the power I did hold by being the only and being the first. Yeah, there are so many moments where the framing, the a shift in that can create a kind of paradigm shift as well. Yeah, right. Uh, which you describe through this process, right, of... of yeah of carrying so much with you. Um, I, I want to ask you about the title of your book and if you could just share, share that the inspiration for the title, because it's so lovely. Thank you. Um, so the title is the wind at my back. Um, throughout the time that I, uh, knew Raven personally, um, every performance and she never missed a performance, uh, that she would, either be there, be there at the show. Um, 
she'd see me afterwards. Uh, we'd talk on the phone or she would leave a voicemail for me. Uh, and she would always, it was always this long voicemail about how excited she was uh, to see me dance and how she was thinking of me. But she would always end uh, the message of the conversation with, when you're on the stage, let me be the wind at your back. Um, and it was so, uh, it just meant so much to me because it was as if, you know, there was a passing of the torch and I, again, was, you know, performing these roles that she never got an opportunity to be. And it was like she was there pushing me forward. Um, but it also made me think about not just Raven, but all of the incredible Black women who had paved the way for me to be there. It was like all of them, are the wind at my back. So, you know, those those words are so powerful. And um, to this day, I still have voicemail saved on my phone from her. Um, saying that to me. Yeah, let me be the wind at your back. I thought it was cute that she wasn't always the easiest person to reach because you would have to call her. Oh my gosh. It was terrible. She didn't even have call waiting. She didn't have a cell phone. She didn't have a computer or the internet, like nothing. And then she didn't even have call waiting. So like, you just, you know, I mean, I can't even think of the last time I'd experienced that where you're just like calling and it's just like, beep, beep, beep. <laughs> like, oh my God, Raven. And she could talk. So she'd be on the other line for hours with her friends. You're like trying to get a hold of her. <laughs> so funny. It's good that you, that's why it's good that you saved those voicemails. So just in case you couldn't reach her, she didn't have to be home. But, you know, a lot of people... They, they hope to find mentors or they hope to be a really effective mentor, but it can be really hard to create that relationship, to have it be truly consistent and meaningful. And I am curious what you learned from your relationship with Raven about what makes mentoring relationships successful, impactful. Yeah. Um, I think it's really important to, um, to be there in critical times. Uh, I, I, I mean, I've been mentoring young dancers for many, many years now. And, you know, of course it's about consistency and, and being available and being there, but it's not, it's not always realistic, but I think it's important to, um, to be there in those in those times of need, in those really critical times, and and that's the the power of of mentorship and having mentors in your life is being able to rely on someone when you don't have the strength or the confidence to do it on your own. To be able to lean on someone that can that can lift you up or be your backbone in those times when you just can't do it on your own. Um, and, and, and that's what Raven was for me. You know, if I needed her, she was there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we have another question here. You offer very personal stories about the company system, diversity, et cetera. What do you hope can or will change in the dance world in the next five to 10 years? Hmm. You know, I've seen a lot of change uh, in the in the past three years, which uh, you know I I never imagined in my uh, you know time as a professional that I would see firsthand. Um, but you know, I hope to continue to see uh, more diversity in terms of the choreographers, the uh, composers of music, the conductors that are, um, you know, on the stage and, and with these companies, um, because it does change the way that these stories are told. I mean, as well as, as, um, 
bringing more diversity in terms of the stories we're telling, that they can reflect um, America, they can reflect the world, that we're not just um, telling these, you know, old, early 1900, 1800s stories that were, you know, written by white European men, um, that we, we can't connect to those stories, like a lot of people in this day and age. Um, and I think it's important that we just continue to evolve to con- continue to um, make ballet more um, inclusive um, and just really be able to see a, a reflection of, of the world. Yeah, it is interesting, really, when you think about the types of stories that that are told, and it matters so much who is telling them and what experiences are reflected in those types of stories. Um, right. Another audience member wants to know, how did you manage to maintain your creativity and passion during COVID when performances were canceled or put on hold? Um, I found them in different ways. You know, I, I, I actually haven't been on stage performing ballet since December of 2019, um, because of COVID. And then I had my baby and I'm still making my way back to the studio. Um, but I found different, different outlets, you know, whether it was through starting, uh, my production company, Life in Motion Productions, which, um, you know, it's it's a way for me to get dance to more people. And what better way to do that than through film and through television? And, and, um, and I think that the whole, I think the world realized that and learned that through COVID, the power of um, video, the power of YouTube, the power of, uh, you know, these streaming services and how we can bring art to those spaces. Um, and now that the world is back up and running, like we still need to take advantage of, of those opportunities because so many people that may not have the the financial means to go to a theater, the Metropolitan Opera House, um, should be able to to tune in and see art on their screen. Um, so I, you know, I have a ton of projects, um, in the works, uh, through my production company that I have been working on, uh, through the pandemic that kept me creative, I actually, uh, made a short film that, that I produced, uh, through life in motion productions. And I'm also starring in, it's called flower and it was, um, filmed in Oakland, California, and really focused on that community, um, and using dance and, and art, uh, ballet, to um, shine a light on the homelessness crisis in in Northern California, um, gentrification and redlining. Uh, so I found I found lots of um, artistic ways to stay motivated. Yeah, we have gone through a lot. You've touched on the all the things that we've gone through in the last few years, and I wonder how much you have drawn upon the lessons you learned through ballet as you've also thought about um, bringing Jackson into the world and into this world, um, because you also talk very poignantly about feeling overwhelmed by all the things that were laid bare in the last six years, at least, I would say, or more, um, but especially in the last few um, how do you see those parallels? How do you see those intersections between being a mom and and being a dancer? Yeah, um, you know, it's it's made me 
you know, realize just the, the importance of, of being present and, um, and being open and, um, and ready to impart all that I've learned, you know, from my own experiences, from Raven's experiences, the stories that she's told, uh, to be able to best prepare my son for the world he's entering into. And I, you know, I must say, like, I'm very thankful and grateful to my own mother for uh, preparing me in a way um, as a biracial girl um, entering into the world that she made it very clear that you are a black woman. That's how you are going to be viewed and and treated by society, by the world. It doesn't matter how much black you have in you. Um, and, and that's something that I think has has prepared me for bringing a black son into the world, um, that I, I, I want to prepare him in, in the best way I can um, to, uh, to be comfortable in his skin and, um, and also ex- know what to expect um, when, you know, in different circumstances and situations. We actually have a related question I'm seeing from the audience. You recently became a mother. What has surprised you the most? (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Um, You know, all of the, you know, so many girlfriends of mine are just people that I've met along the way when I was pregnant that that were just kind of preparing me for all of the, the hard things, the difficult things. And, you know, it was kind of like, this is overwhelming and terrifying hearing all of the, like, this is what's going to happen. And this is how you're going to feel. And you're not going to get any sleep. And, you know, you're not gonna be able to find a ballot, like all of these things. And I think I've found, um, so much joy in those things. Like this is all a part of it. This is like the beauty of, of creating, a human being of raising a, a person and a child. And I just, I feel um, that this is the time. I'm, I mean, I'm 40 years old. My, my, me and my husband just, I think, feel really ready. And um, I would recommend to uh, parents out there that having children at a later age is pretty awesome. <laughs> so when do you get back? on stage. Um, you have, you said you have not been for a while for so many reasons, plus the fact that you've had Jackson and, you know, that certainly also does a number on our bodies. (laughs) Um, so I am aiming to be back in my first performances with American Ballet Theater, um, in the fall winter of 2023. Um, so I am taking my time, but, uh, you know, I want to spend, I want to spend this precious time with my son. And I also want to be as physically and mentally focused and prepared to, um, to, to get back on stage with this new body that I'm, that I'm working with. (laughs) And so what does that look like for you in terms of the progression? In In terms of like getting back into training or, okay. (laughs) Um, this, this has been such, you know, a difficult thing right now because it's just, it's, there's so much mom guilt that I feel, you know, whenever I'm away from him and the time that the time and dedication that it takes to get to the, the, the level that I need to, to dance with American ballet theater. I mean, um, 
that's going to be really difficult to really take the time to step away um, on top of all the other jobs I have. Um, so, you know, so it's getting back in the studio. It's taking an hour and a half ballet class every morning, um, you know, a slow progression of doing that consistently, you know, every like five days a week straight. And then eventually, um, you know, starting uh, personal training and um getting coaching on certain roles just to build the stamina uh, back up uh, to be able to go on stage. So that could be four to five hours probably in the beginning, um, working up to eight hour rehearsal days, which is the norm uh, at American Ballet Theater, um, gearing up for a performance. And so do you worry about, you've talked about as a new, you say you have a new body and do you worry about that? And if you do, how do you manage that? I, um, I I don't worry about it. I'm excited. Um, I've I at this point in my life, like I understand um, how how my body works and and how body our bodies are are gonna you know continue to change throughout our lives. You know, I think back to being 19 years old at ABT and um, going through puberty. You know, at a late age, but going through puberty and and being able to step back and say that's my old body. And what am I going to do with this new body that I'm in? And how am I going to make it its best self? And, and being able to separate, uh, you know, not looking back and, and trying to be that old person. Uh, so there, there's going to be so many beautiful discoveries. There's going to be things that I'm going to have to let go of that I'm just like, I used to be able to do that like this. And I can't now <laughs> um, after a baby, but I, I'm looking forward to um, discovering uh, new challenges and, and, and things that, um, uh, I couldn't do before that maybe I can do better now. Another audience member wants to know what advice you pass along to young aspiring dancers. Yeah. You know, it's, I think it's important to, um, to stay focused on your path that you will never be like anyone else. Um, it's, it's, you know, as Prince has told me, uh, you know, that it's so uh, powerful to be a unique individual and not to compare yourself to, to other people because it only takes away um, from your experience and from your focus. Yeah. I, so I wanted to ask you, we talked earlier about what ballet gave you um, and, and the power that it shows you you possessed and so on. Um, both you and Raven basically have changed the dance world forever. I, the role that you have being firsts always changes things. Um, it's never quite the same again. And I wonder if you had to characterize what you've brought to the dance world. Like, what would you say you, Misty Copeland, have brought to it? Hmm. <laughs> I would say that I've I've brought it to more people. <laughs> that I've I've um, maybe allowed for people to feel that it's something that they can do. That it's that it's not this far away elite thing that doesn't connect with everyday people. And, and I feel like by sharing my story, um, by expressing that, um, you know, I, I didn't come from this typical 
um, upbringing of, of a classical dancer that, that comes from money or comes from a, a certain uh, status in society, um, that I think it's allowed for more people to feel like it's for them. Hmm. Um, another audience member is wondering if there uh, is a funny or surprising story about Raven that you want to share. Oh, it's Raven. Um, in general, like she had such a racy sense of humor <laughs> and, um, she just, she was, she was naughty. <laughs> she was naughty. Like she would, she, um, she would kind of turn stories into uh, being like really sexual in ways that you were like, Raven, where is this coming from? But she was such a big flirt and she flirt, she would flirt with my husband before we were married um, so much. Um, she was just not at all the way she appears as this sweet, old lady with her swept up do in a bun and, and her, her long dresses. She uh, had an incredible sense of humor. Um, you know, the Commonwealth Club, it has a tradition. I should invite, if there are any final questions, you should get them in now because we just have about five more minutes left. But they do like to ask um their guests this question, which is what is your 60 second idea to change the world? So what is your 60 second idea to change the world? Wow. This is, this is a lot of pressure. Um, you know, I, I really think that it's just continuing on what I'm doing. Um, I think to, uh, to be able to introduce as many people to art and to dance, um, can, can change the world. It can change their lives. You know, whether it's it's through uh, the endorsement deals that I have and getting ballet out there to a mass audience, or through um, the a program that I have through my foundation called Be Bold, where it's you know it's an after school ballet program that's bringing free ballet classes to under resourced, underrepresented, underprivileged communities to be able to give them the tools to be leaders in their communities. Yeah. If you didn't dance, what would you do? What do you think would be, what would be something that, that would be what Misty Copeland does in the next chapter, you know, of her life? Um, well, I mean, because dance is a part of my life and has been, you know, since I was 13 and it means so much to me, I, moving forward, even if I wasn't dancing, um, I will be connected to ballet in some way, getting the message out there, um, you know, speaking about it, being an advocate for it. But, uh, you know, if I hadn't ever found dance, I have, I, I would have been a part of something artistic, but I'm really just drawn to cooking and food. And um, I often say maybe I would be a chef. <laughs> you have often described yourself as a bunhead. Can you explain what that is? <laughs> yes. Um, uh, it was a bunhead move to be uh, watching that documentary, The Ballet Russe de Monte Carlo on like a Saturday night when I'm like in my 20s. Um, it's, it's like a ballet nerd. It's someone who's really dedicated and they call them bunheads because, you know, the, the ballerinas that are, even when they're off, their hair is slicked back tight in a bun, either up on their head or at the nape of their neck. Um, and you see them walking around with their turned out toes and uh, you can spot a, a bun head a mile away. <laughs> and that is the 
sort of the inspiration of your children's book as well, yes. right? Yes, yes. The you know, I've I've always thought yes, it has this kind of negative connotation and I've feel like I've tried to turn it into something positive and that it's like this amazing club that kids should want to be a part of. And so through my children's book, Bunheads, um, it's like this kind of secret society. It's all of these uh, uh, eclectic group of kids that um, find this commonality through the beauty of ballet. And it's like their own little club. Yes. And, and children's books is something that you love to do. You really like to make yourself as accessible as possible to the rest of the world, which is so important when ballet can feel really closed off. It's also the work of your foundation. You've mentioned it several times, and I wanted to give you an opportunity to share sort of what is it that you would like to do with that moving forward? Yeah. Uh, you know, through the the Misty Copeland Foundation, it's it's an opportunity to Truly, you know, it's not just, uh, you know, there have been so many diversity initiatives that I've championed or I've been a part of, but it's it's really not just about creating a diversity initiative, but um, really finding programs and, and ways to um, to bring ballet to more people and to bring more awareness to have uh, spaces where we can have um, open dialogue and conversations about ways that we can improve the ballet world. But um, I'm, I'm just so proud again of, of this first program, the Be Bold program, which stands for Ballet Explorations. Ballet offers leadership development. And I think it's really self-explanatory that this is not just about exposing children to the arts and exposing them to ballet, um, getting them into a ballet class. But, um, you know, it's it's not about creating the next Raven Wilkinson or, or Misty Copeland necessarily. We would love that to happen. But um, it's really giving these young people um, the tools to be able to be successful in their lives and, and, again, to be leaders in their communities. Well, we do have one more question that snuck in here. You mentioned you love food. Is there a dish that is your specialty best meal or restaurant? I actually, I'm really excited. Ina Garden has a new show. Um, I think it's called Be Our Guest. I believe it's called. Um, she's one of my favorite chefs, Ina Garden. Um, but the Barefoot Contessa, if people don't know her name that way. Um, I recently was on her show and made one of my favorite dishes for her. Um, and it's a, a broiled salmon with a marinade that I make myself with. Um, it's like a citrus salmon. So it's like orange juice and soy sauce and um, scallions. Uh, what else is in it? Um, it's it's just it's a bright, beautiful dish. And then um, with like a, a sweet potato mash. Um, underneath it. So simple uh, and tasty. <laughs> <laughs> and so something, you, another, another move, another book f uh, for you, Misty, <laughs> moving forward. I wouldn't, I wouldn't be surprised. Um, so, you know, one of the things that I never uh, got, I realized I, I didn't ask you about was, was the moment that you actually first met Raven Wilkinson, if you want to share that story with yeah. Um, it was really amazing. You know, again, just 
what I found out about her and her story, I used every opportunity, every interview I would, I would talk about Raven. Um, and it, my manager, um, Gilda Squire, uh, she was like, who is this woman? And she looked her up and, um, and ended up coming up with the idea to, um, have a conversation at the studio museum in Harlem and, um, have a conversation between two generations of black ballerinas. So, um, it was there at the studio museum in Harlem that we met for the first time, um, seconds before we went on stage and had our first conversation, um, in front of an audience. And, um, I met her backstage and I just, I bawled my eyes out. I was, I was stunned to see that we were the same height. She was this petite, soft-spoken, um, beautiful woman. Um, and we just embraced and held hands as we walked to the stage. And I feel like we never really let go from that day on. Yeah. There's something about, we talked earlier about you being a bunhead and there's something about being able to place yourself in history, right? Being able to place yourself in something of the past Mm -hmm. that actually, as you were saying, makes you realize you do belong somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I do feel like for, for people who've always had representation that can be a really hard thing to explain. Right. You well, you just said it very well. <laughs> um, that that it that it can be really difficult if that's all if that that's all you know. All you know is seeing yourself represented and um uh and it was just like this it was a shock to me and also like a, a missing piece, you know, when I met Raven, it was like Oh, like, you know, the reason that my body feels so natural and I and I've I become the person I'm supposed to be when I'm on the stage is because I am supposed to be part of this. And Raven uh, learning of her contributions and and her history in this uh, art form just validated that. You've talked about how you've been able to translate the power that you feel when you're on the stage now to the times when you are off the stage. Is there something that you do to be able to do that when you're confronting moments when you're feeling vulnerable? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I've always felt that, um, you know, it was, it was difficult for me to accept that um, my voice was important or uh, needed to be heard when it, when I was using it verbally, you know, through, through my voice. Um, I, it always felt that um, I'm supposed to be on stage. I'm supposed to use my body to express myself, but it was always hard for me to, um, to really feel that um, my voice was important. And so, you know, uh, it's, it's taken time, but you know, the way that, that I, I use my voice, whether it's speaking up about, um, certain, certain situations of, of racism or discrimination, um, you know, in, in, in championing, uh, other black and brown people in this, in this art form, um, I've become a different person by understanding the importance of not just being representation on the stage, but also off the stage. Well, Missy, thank you so much for telling your story and, Raven's story and and for the impact that both of you have had. Uh, Misty Copeland's new book is The Wind at My Back, Resilience, Grace, and Other Gifts from my mentor, Raven Wilkinson. 
I encourage everyone to pick up a copy of Misty's book at your local bookstore. <laughs> and also my thanks to the Applied Materials Foundation and all of you for joining us. If you would like to learn more about upcoming in-person and virtual Commonwealth Club events, please visit www.commonwealthclub.org slash events. Thank you again, Misty. It's been such a pleasure to meet you and talk talk with you. I know I mentioned earlier that also my daughters are such huge fans of yours, but yeah. Thank you so, so much for having me. This has been so wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. I'm Nina Kim. Take care. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Thank you.